Welcome to the Ladies Who Lead podcast. I'm your host, SK Vaughn. This is a community of women supporting women. Each week, we'll hear from ordinary ladies doing extraordinary things. We'll cover topics like diversity and inclusion, gender pay gap, and respect in the workplace. We want to celebrate with you and hear stories of success and hard lessons learned. Whether you're a lady who leads in the boardroom or a lady who leads in your community, this is the place for you. So buckle up, girlfriend. Let's do this. Jenny Naylor is the Director of Educational Research for a Medical Residency Program in Central Arkansas. She obtained her PhD in Neuroscience in 2015 from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Jenny's focus in graduate school was how drug abuse like cocaine and opioids interact with the brain and alter behavior. Jenny has a love for travel and is looking forward to going places again this year. So welcome, Jenny. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. Well, I like to start the podcast off with how are you surviving this week and how are you thriving? Because hashtag Thriving Thursday is a thing here on the <laughs> podcast. And I'll go first while you're kind of thinking through that. For me, how am I surviving this week? I think it's a loaded question for me this week, truthfully. Um, I had two people resign this week. And, you know, if you've been listening along, I've already been trying to fill some other positions. And so that's been a really hard thing for me as a leader of a team because I so much love the marketing team and I love what we're doing and all the creative work that we're producing. And so it's just really sad for me to, to kind of have that realization this week. Um, but we talk things through not leaving for, for any kind of sad, like terrible reasons for the team or for um, anything like that. And so it's just been a really just hard season, especially this week as I'm filling roles and then people are leaving and it's just kind of part of where we're at. Um, we're growing, we're scaling. And I think that that means that there's some big opportunities coming and I just have to be at peace knowing that the right people are going to come along and that uh, we'll find the right fit with the team. And then how am I thriving this week? Well, <laughs> It's a great question too. That <laughs> really felt like I was just surviving this week. I'm just going to be full, fully honest there. Full disclosure it has not been an easy week, but I think thriving in just this season of putting myself out there in a different way than I have before and learning to just kind of love myself in this season, despite not being perfect and, and really anything and just having to kind of pick up the pieces and go, it's just been a hard season in life. And so I feel like how I'm thriving is just growing through in a way what I'm going through, which sounds so cheesy, but it is true. And I think that it's really kind of equipped me for that next thing in life. And I just have to kind of cling to that hope and just know that like there are good and bad days and there's just different seasons in life. And, um, that's where I'm at this week. What about you, Jenny? I hear you. I hear you. Um, so I'm going to, I think for me, it's, so there's a couple, it's kind of twofold for me. So the, the surviving and thriving, I'm almost, I would say one thing that's doing both for me, to be honest with you, is I'm about to go on vacation um, this coming week. And when I think of how am I thriving or surviving, it's doing both for me is just having that. I'm really, I'm really ready and looking forward to some consecutive days off. And we've been working really hard lately. I love what I do and I love working hard. I'm, you know, it's, it, it brings me joy to be challenged, but then at the same time, you, you know, I need that downtime. We all need that recharge, reset. Um, and so I feel like looking forward to the, my vacation, looking, looking at it as a way to recharge and reset and just come back, you know, full force again, um, to my, to my day to day 
is keeping me keeping me afloat and it's also just making me feel very positive and motivated it, it kind of motivates me to really get some things done so that when i come back there's you know i don't feel like i left things hanging i like to kind of just close up anything and go recharge reset and then come back and be more motivated than ever so yes i love that and i'm a big believer in wherever you go on vacation, you have to eat like the food that's known (laughs) for the area. So just tell us like, what are y'all going to eat? Because that's the biggest thing I think about when I go on vacation. (laughs) Yes. I want to experience the local culture of things wherever I go. We're going to Maine and I've never, I've never been to that part of the United States. So I'm really excited um, to see just a different part of the country. Um, We're definitely going to be eating lots of seafood, going to get some lobster rolls, going to get some great beer going to probably try to find as many blueberry flavored things as possible. Cause that's what I have been told and read is just very, very good up there. So, um, yeah, definitely going to have a vacation of just experiencing all the, all the local things that we can get up there and really just relaxing. We don't have a huge agenda. So I will be living <laughs> vicariously through y'all mm-hmm. through this whole <laughs> trip. How did you go from getting your PhD in neuroscience to becoming a director of educational research? Yeah. So, um, definitely not a direct route there, (laughs) but it's not really a one track thing. So, I mean, I decided to get my PhD because I fell in love with research in college. I thought that, um, I I loved the brain and I initially was thinking, Oh, if I go to med school, I would want to study the brain and be a neurologist or something like that. But when I found research, it just, that was something that it hit me in a way that nothing ever had before. So I knew that I wanted to do that and be more um, hands-on and learning and asking the whys and hows of things. It took me five and a half years. I got my PhD in neuroscience. And throughout that process, you know, the very, I guess the traditional route is you get your PhD, you go, you go work in university, you teach, you apply for grants and funding, and you do more research appealed to me as much. I wanted to do something different with my degree, sort of like administrative research work, um, oversight of, of research pro- programs and projects. So that was kind of my goal um, by the end of grad school. Um, so after doing grad school, then I did a two-year postdoc. I moved more into kind of the project management side of things, you know, in this vein of teaching research, overseeing a program. Cause I felt like that was my strength was, I think I was, I think I'm more oriented towards that. And this job came up and I applied and had lots of meetings with this, the group that I'm with and things worked out. And, um, it was, I think it was a right, t- it was a timing thing. It was right time for them, right time for me. It's a new field. It's a new area. And I mean, I'm kind of kind of paving the way there, um, in terms of this position, because there wasn't any, I didn't replace anyone. I kind of am the first person to, to do what I'm doing. So it's a, it's interesting in that, in that aspect. Oh, that's really cool. So explain to our listeners who just may not be aware, like what is a neuroscientist and what was your favorite <laughs> part of it? Like about yeah. being a neuroscientist? So, well, we know that it's basically doing research on the brain and our brains do literally everything. So, there are so many different facets of neuroscience. Um, you know, you can do developmental neuroscience and look at, you know, in utero, um, in utero things that happen to the brain and how, how those things impact development. Um, I was specifically doing, um, more behavioral neuroscience and specifically pharmacological 
So what we did was we looked at how drugs that interact with the brain also impact behavior and kind of the interplay of those things. Um, and so I was specifically, my, my, my um, dissertation was specifically looking at opioid medications and how we might make them with a lower abuse potential um, but still have them be efficacious for pain treatment and, you know, for the therapeutic benefits that, that they have. So, you know, I studied drugs of abuse. That was my area. When I discovered that you could study the way that drugs um, affect the brain and behavior, that was my, that was the biggest pull for me. Um, Wow. That's so cool. And then out of all of that research and study that you did, what was kind of your findings with specific drug, I guess, abuse? Is that kind of what we're talking about? In a yeah. Sense? And well, uh, yeah. So I would say one of my favorite projects that we did um, was right around the time that, you know, those, the drugs called those designer stimulants that were, that were named bath salts were hitting the news. So we were a lab that was able to get our hands on some of those emerging drugs. And so we actually published a paper comparing them to you know, traditional stimulants like methamphetamine. And so that was some really interesting work because the designer drug trend is, um, it's a really interesting topic because what, you know, the way that the laws work is that um, certain drugs are scheduled, you know, so they're illegal drugs, but if you change like one part of their chemical structure, they're not illegal anymore. And those laws are changing now because they've caught on to basically if you're a chemist and you can design a drug, you could make a methamphetamine like drug is technically legal because there's no, we don't, we didn't even know it existed. So we studied how those, you know, emerging bath salt drugs were similar to drugs of abuse that were already out there and we knew they were dangerous. And so that was one of my favorite kind of topics to talk about. Wow. That is really cool. I could talk to you about all day about that. (laughs) That just is interesting to me. It's a whole different podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What is the difference? You know, you've, you've had different roles and worn many, many, many different hats. What do you Mm -hmm. feel like is the biggest difference between working for like the FDA or government versus like academic research? Yeah. So, um, so I obviously did my PhD in an academic medical institution. And basically what that means is I did my PhD at a hospital that also houses graduate school and medical school and nursing schools and things like that. Um, so they just typically are termed academic medical institutions. And that's where, you know, you apply for funding from the NIH um, or other government entities, but you apply for the funding. And so all of the people I worked with, they were funded researchers doing their own grants um, and, and writing their own grants. And then when I, I did a postdoc with um, the FDA, where it's similar where people, you know, we were funded on a grant, but it was more directed because they were, they had specific things that the FDA needed um, to do their, you know, to do the regulatory work that's required. And so it's a little different because I think the um, it's a little more um, structured and there's a a little less freedom when you're with the government to kind of make adjustments to your research plan. It's, it's a decision by committee type of thing. Um, which makes sense. I mean, all of it really made sense to me, but it, there was just, there's differences there and you don't have as much flexibility as a researcher. You know, if you're somebody that's really creative and wants to um, make changes and do a lot of different things all the time, you know, government research probably isn't going to beat your bag. Um, 
at the same time, when you're grant funded, you do have to adhere to what you have laid out in your, in your grant proposal. Like you can't just completely change gear, but, um, it's, there's just a little bit more flexibility. You're a little bit more, um, in charge of the day to day, whereas with government and it's, I think that's similar to any government job. You just, there is, you're answering to a much higher, higher level there, um, for different reasons. So that was, that was something I, it was interesting to learn about. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about your experience getting your PhD. Mm -hmm. What were some of the pros and what were some of the cons? I, I always tell people, I guess I'll start by saying I had more fun during grad school than I did in college. I enjoyed, I honestly enjoyed my time even through the struggles and the hardships, because there certainly were those during grad school and the, and the stakes were certainly higher than they were in college. I think it, it was almost like when, when I went to do my PhD, I think I knew that it was meant to do because I was the happiest I'd ever been during that time. So I'll, I'll preface it with that, but uh, I would say the, you know, the biggest pros were I knew what I was doing was something that I was passionate about and loved. There was no, there was no nagging sense of dragging myself into work every day. I mean, I was working seven days a week at, but at a lot of times during my PhD, I had to go in on Saturdays and Sundays for a little while to run experiments and to do things. Cause you can't, you don't get a day off, but I was able to do it cause I loved it. Um, and so I would say that was the biggest pro was knowing that that was something that I was passionate about and just really loved. Um, the cons I mean, it's a commitment. I mean, it's a, it's a lifestyle you have to, that if you don't love it, you're not going to be able to do it well, I don't think. And so for me, there was a lot of sacrifices for my time. Um, you know, I, I couldn't, I didn't, I just, it, it's not like an eight to five either. It was like, I didn't get to leave it behind at the end of the day. I was running experiments all day, working all day. And then I still had to write a dissertation at night or something. Whenever I could find time, I was still having to read and write and do those things. So you don't get to leave it behind. And even on the weekends, you know, there were lots of weekends where it was like, no, I have to work, you know, got to get this done. As the director of educational research, kind of shifting gears now, mm -hmm. um, what does your day-to-day -day look like? And what is your favorite part of your job? Yeah. Um, so, uh, at director of educational research, I, you know, I, I work with medical residents on their, basically their, all of their non-clinical duties while they're, cause they are still learners in that environment. Um, so they, they're expected to meet, um, certain educational requirements and training requirements. And so I help them with all the non-clinical aspects of that and my day-to-day, -day, I mean, I, so it's a, it is, this, this is an eight to five, you know, office job. Um, we are located on a hospital campus, but our building is separate. So it's more, it really is a more academic office setting that I work in. We have a good group of us that are coworkers and that get along really well. And we work with the different programs in a lot of different ways. <laughs> um, but my day-to-day, -day, I mean, I meet with residents a lot of most, pretty much every day I meet with some residents about their projects. And then I have my own ongoing projects that I'm working on, trying to continue research um, in different ways with the hospital and just keeping things, keeping things going. So I'm, I feel like I'm pulled in a lot of different directions most days because I have probably no less than four or five different, different projects that I'm going back and forth between. Um, but it's fun. It keeps me challenged. It's a really unique environment. 
you know, from your own experience and from research that you've done or books that you've read, why do you feel like burnout is so prevalent in this day and age specific with millennials? Yeah. Uh, I lo- like, I love this. I love this question and I love this topic. I I've been reading a lot about it because it, it's something that I've all, all of a sudden, I mean, not all of a sudden, it's something that I, I, I recognize in myself. Um, but then when you actually go out there and look, it's something that we're all experiencing to different degrees. Um, and it's typically, yes, the it's millennials, people born, you know, in the mid to late eighties through the early nineties. Um, we're hitting these walls professionally, personally. Um, and it's, it's a little scary sometimes. And sometimes you feel like you might be the only one experiencing it or that you might be doing something wrong. And then when I, when I actually look into it and read about it, it's pretty common. I've read a book recently. It's called can't even, and I can't, cannot remember the author's name, but I highly recommend the book. Literally every sentence in the book resonated with me. I was nodding my head the whole time. It was crazy. So highly recommend reading it. And I agree with the author on this is that we were raised by um, a generation of parents who wanted us to be the best. They wanted us to be better than them. And they thought that every, they thought that was a great way to raise children. And I agree that it probably, it's a great aspiration for, for raising a generation of people is to say, we want you to do better than we did. But in the climate that we're in, we were trained that achievements are just the way of the world, that everything we do has to be an achievement. Everything should be celebrated. Everything is a trophy. And I think that that gets old once you get into the real world, once you grow up and get out of school and go into the job market, you have to be a little bit, you have to kind of take everything with a grain of salt. And so I think that our achievement value really plays a big role in why we all feel so burned out and run down all the time. I don't don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's a really great point. And I, myself, like I'm a big personality assessment tester. Mm -hmm, (laughs) So mm -hmm. I've done the Enneagram test recently and I'm a three, which is the achiever. So it's just funny that you mentioned that because even from like an early age, like I've always remember like prioritizing the win, prioritizing, Mm -hmm. like, how can I be my, my best self and, and feeling that pressure from a really early age to succeed. And I right. think that there's pros and cons to that, right? Like, I think it, it gets you to where you want to be at an early age or a specific point in your life. Like you set goals and you go after it, but at what cost? How do you avoid burnout for yourself? I mean, that's a great question. It's something I'm still working on. I think I give myself more grace. You know, I'm, I'll, I'll be 33 this week and I'm just now in the last couple of years coming to terms with you know, it's okay to, to not just give it 150% 24 seven. Um, so I kind of give myself some grace, give myself some leeway and also really reassess, reassess my priorities more often, I think, because I think we tend to, especially as achievers, I'm a, you know, I'm a, t- I'm sure, I think you're the same We're type A personality people where I just, everything's important. Everything feels urgent. Everything feels important a lot of time. And so I'm trying to do that a little bit less and to really, really prioritize and not neglect things, but just restructure how I'm prioritizing them. I think more people need just seem to be aware of that and hear that, mm-hmm. especially in today's age, just with all the craziness of life. I think it's an important thing just to remember, take time for yourself and to prioritize and not to, it's like trying to be 
everything for everyone. And I think that Mm -hmm. is hard to prioritize that at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think, um, just recognizing what is and isn't worth your stress at times can be, I mean, and that can be a challenge. I mean, I go through that all the time where I catch myself. Um, and then I try to kind of recenter and say, is this really worth ruining my day over or feeling defeated this week? You know, it's, it, it is a, it's a struggle, but it's something that if you can be cognizant of it, I think it's, it's, it helps. Yeah. So throughout your career or in your life, you know, what has been kind of the hardest lesson you've learned along the way? And I'm still learning. I mean, I still learn it every single day. And like I mentioned just now, I'm, I'm a type a person. Um, but it's that we can't control everything. Um, we can plan and plan and do everything that we think is right. And things are still just not going to go the way you think they're going to go. Um, and that, that's been a hard one for me. It's hard for me on a daily basis. Sometimes, um, it's a challenge in my relationships It's a challenge in my career, but I'm learning it and I'm accepting it and it makes things a lot easier when you do. But, um, I think it's just that no matter whether it was an experiment going wrong when I was getting my PhD to, you know, a coworker, not answering my email at you, I've been, I just have to learn how to deal with those things that are out of my control and accept that they're out of my control. I had, I had this incredible mentor in grad school. He was absolutely incredible and he passed away while I was in grad school. So it was very surreal and strange, but he, one of the, one of the things that he told me, and I think this is really, really relevant to, especially women in the workplace today. But I mean, even then it was just funny that he said it because I live by this now. Don't apologize. I mean, obviously apologize when you, when an apology is warranted, but saying, I'm sorry, don't ever feel like you have to do that. You know, correct your mistakes, say that, say this, you know, this was something that went wrong and I can fix it next time, but don't ever say you're sorry when things, especially, I think this is particularly in like the professional in the career environment of don't say you're sorry, say I'll fix it and it won't happen again and move on. Um, and I live by that. And it honestly has served me very well. Um, I've stopped because I, I, I catch myself wanting to say, oh, I'm so sorry that I didn't answer this email faster. Or I'm so sorry that I forgot to respond or, you know, you know, just little things like that. And it's funny how much it changes when you stop doing that, how much your attitude changes and how much how much more confident you feel in yourself. Like it's, you're not sorry. Like it's not your fault that that didn't right. happen. I mean, I think if, if anything, we just need to accept accountability and accept um, ownership of some things and just say, I'll fix it. Look, yeah. like that won't happen again. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, I think it's, we, as women, I think that we, we take on so much responsibility for everyone around us and for everything around us. And so that's why that piece of advice has always stuck with me. And the more I practice it, the better I get at it. And it's not an arrogance thing and it's not a rudeness thing. If I, I mean, if I feel like I need to apologize, of course I apologize, but it's those little, it's the, I'm sorry on a day-to-day basis that we, that a man, you know, men would never do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. And then as many times as you say that, then they start thinking that there's fault with you. Right. Yeah. Constantly 
try to take on that burden and, and make it personal, it, it starts to get that way. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, if something didn't get done, it just didn't get done. Let's fix it and move forward and not make it personal. It's not a blame game, but yet somehow I think sometimes we can internalize that and make it feel as if it is. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you bring that up. Well, shifting gears, it's now time for the leading ladies we love rapid fire game. Get excited. Oh gosh. I'm so bad at these. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to do great. Um, So basically all I'm going to do is list out a couple of adjectives that best describe women. And we just want to support them, lift them up, encourage them. So if you have anybody that comes to mind, shout out their name and give us a quick um, little tidbit of who they are and we'll keep it moving. Are you ready? I'm I'm as ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) All right, let's do this. First word is leader. Leader. So I'm going to shout out to to my friend who works her butt off all day, every day. And I don't really, I don't want to go into specifics, but her name, her name's, her name is Anne and she, she works in government and um, it's a stressful job and she does a great job at it. And I'm just, you know, proud of her, proud, proud that she's my friend. The next word is intelligent. Intelligent. This one I'm gonna I'm gonna have to just kind of give a shout out to all of my all my residents who especially I've, I've been working with some really really smart people lately. They're giving their all on projects. So um, gonna shout out to them. Great. Next word is bold. Bold. Uh, my friend Crystal. She is a bold person. She's not afraid of anything. She has no no qualms about being herself and it's awesome and she's very unique um she works in the mortgage business and is is a basically kind of a boss lady it's pretty cool next word is innovative innovative my friend carly who is planning to go back to school we talked about it this weekend and i'm really excited for her she's thinking about going to get her phd and she she knows what she wants to do and she's trying to make that decision right now which is a tough one but i'm proud of her and i think that's a really innovative thing when you reassess your career and decide on a new path okay last word real real uh my friend krista super real she um also she's a single lady um commutes to work every day, gets the job done, most positive person I've ever encountered in my life, um, makes no apologies for, for who she is, but um, realest person you'll ever be, you'll ever meet and a, tr- a really true friend that you can call on whenever you need to. All right. Well, that's the end of our Leading Ladies We Love rapid fire game. <laughs> All right. So I've just really loved getting to hear from you, Jenny, and just kind of hearing your heart and hearing kind of your wisdom and and your truth and what you've been pursuing and what you have pursued. For our listeners, can you please uh, share your shameless plug with us? How can our (laughs) listeners get connected to you? Yeah. So I think the best way to kind of find me, I I really, I like, I enjoy connecting with people on LinkedIn. I think that's just a great way to kind of get a good overview of somebody. So Jenny Naylor on LinkedIn, Uh, I I think I'm Jenny Naylor PhD on LinkedIn, but you should be able to find me. And um, I love supporting women in their career choices and their career decisions. I think it's an important conversation that we need to be having more often. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jenny. It's always so much fun to catch up. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ladies Who Lead podcast. I'd like to give a special shout out to the one and only Memory Smith. Without her, our designs would not look half as great. She's helped us with our artwork to logo, everything else in between. So if you're interested in more of her design work, please head over to Instagram and look for at Memory Smith Design. Yes, Memory, M-E-M-O-R-Y Smith, S-M-I-T-H Design, all one word. And be sure to give her a like and a follow. If you're looking for all the tea and the behind the scenes scoop on all things Ladies Who Lead podcast, be sure to head on over to theladieswholead.com. That's right, all one word, theladieswholead.com. Until next time, I'm SK Vaughn. 